At 1.30 a.m. on a late spring night in 1944, a German message written in code was intercepted at a military complex in Washington, D.C. Heavy computing machines hummed in the background. When the enciphered message was broken, it was taken upstairs to be translated. An air of suspense permeated the room as the female codebreakers who filled it waited. One of them, who happened to speak German, read the message before it was translated. It said, Enemy landing at the mouth of the Seine. The Allies had landed at Normandy. Female codebreakers knew that this invasion at Normandy was going to happen. And they knew this because they had helped to create one of the greatest deceptions in military history. I'm Kristen, and this is Broadly Underestimated, the podcast dedicated to understanding the underestimated aspects of our lives. Every object, institution, historical event, even the most mundane, has its own revolutionary story. And it's often the underestimated women behind those stories that have shaped life as we know it today. The story of female codebreakers is a fascinating one. From the fabulous Elizabeth Friedman, who we discussed in the previous two episodes of this codebreaking series, to the thousands of women packed into offices and crouched over messages to decrypt for the duration of World War II. At the end of the day, this is a story of a chain of female brilliance, persistence, and grit. These women worked around the clock to decipher enemy codes, uncovering information that would disclose enemy locations and dispositions, prevent German U-boat attacks on Allied ships, and keep supply lines open. It was a long, hard war, but what signaled the beginning of the end was the decisive invasion at Normandy. The journey to that invasion is a story of many female heroes, individual and collective. And it was a series of breakthroughs and the tireless, steady work of these female codebreakers that catapulted the Allies to victory on Invasion Day. Over the years, I've found that German Enigma codes have been a focal point in World War II codebreaking history. And while the break into the Enigma, which we talked about in the previous episode in the series, and we will touch on a little bit later, is a fascinating story, I find that the break into Japanese codes is far less talked about, but just as interesting and just as important. So, This story of cracking Japanese codes actually starts well before the beginning of World War II. So in the 1920s and 30s, a woman named Agnes Meyer, eventually Agnes Meyer Driscoll, was breaking into Japanese Navy codes. As a security measure, the Japanese Navy would establish a code system, then discard it and adopt a new one. So she was breaking into systems, gathering information, then being shut out and having to start all over again. And each time, the new code systems were unique and complicated. She figured out insanely complex systems where codes were enciphered in two separate layers. So enciphered once, and then enciphered again. She also figured out systems where the messages were expressed in a series of five-digit numbers. Each five-digit number was called a code group, but it turned out that those five-digit numbers were actually masked by what's called an additive. An additive is where you take a five-digit code group and add a predetermined number to it, so that even the numbered code groups are disguised. Does that sound as excessive to you as it does to me? 
Well, these lengths show how important it was to keep these communications secret. And as Agnes and her unit broke into those code systems, they gained insight into Japanese strategy and supplies. And the Allies used this information throughout the war to protect troops and to plan attacks, like the invasion at Normandy. So the next breakthrough was the result of a lot of hours, a lot of brain power, and an exceptionally diligent and intelligent young woman. The U.S. had begun monitoring German and Japanese communications, or at least attempting to, long before the declaration of war on Germany and Japan. So on the afternoon of September 20th, 1940, a young blonde woman approached a small group of men talking around a table and told them she had something to show them. This young woman's name was Genevieve Grochen. Genevieve was a class of 1938 math major who took a job calculating pensions for a government agency when she couldn't find a university that would hire her to teach college math. She worked happily on her calculations until she took a math exam to get a routine pay raise. Her score attracted attention from the Signal Intelligence Service, which was responsible for security and monitoring of government communications. When they offered her a job in the code section, Genevieve said yes without even knowing what the position was. It turned out that Genevieve was being asked to be a code breaker. She would be working with William Friedman, Elizabeth Friedman's husband, and she would be trying to break into the ciphers of Japanese diplomats. Japanese diplomats and military used various types of codes and ciphers during the war, but to break things down simply, the Japanese military utilized code books and Japanese diplomats used cipher machines. So Japanese diplomats generally preferred using machine-generated ciphers. U.S. codebreakers called the particular machine that they used the purple machine because different types of codes tended to be color-coded by the U.S. military. So the purple machine first appeared in 1939. The U.S. hadn't even entered the war yet, but they had their eye on Japanese diplomatic communications regardless. In fact, the messages coming out of the purple machine were especially valuable because they tended to give the Allies the best insight into what both the Japanese and German military were thinking, doing, buying, and manufacturing. The purple machine was set up to be compatible with English and Romanji. So in case you're not familiar, Romanji is essentially Japanese written in the same alphabet that is used in English and in so many other languages, as opposed to being written in Japanese symbols. Since code breaking is so much about identifying patterns, the purpose of the purple machine was to make a coded message appear as though there were no identifiable patterns. For example, in one sentence, the letter A could be represented by the letter L, while in the next sentence, or even the next word, the letter A could be represented by the letter G. And the settings for the machine were changed every day, making the code even harder to crack. But of course, patterns did exist. But identifying patterns in a machine-generated cipher was often a time-consuming and arduous process. The patterns were still in there, but they were not apparent. It was a year after taking the job when Genevieve approached her teammates with her discovery. She demonstrated that she had just achieved a triumph that would lead to some of the greatest code-breaking achievements of World War II. She had identified a pattern and cracked the code that would allow them to reconstruct the purple cipher machine and read Japanese diplomatic messages around the world. It had taken Genevieve's team a year and a half to find that pattern. During her year on the project leading up to the discovery, she spent day in and day out making charts, graphs, and tables of the contents of Japanese diplomatic messages. 
She also had an incredible ability to concentrate and would stare at texts, waiting for patterns to emerge. But the theory behind Genevieve's analysis of the code was that some kind of pattern must in fact exist, and this pattern would create a backdoor view into the workings of the machine itself, laying Japanese diplomatic code at the feet of U.S. codebreakers. Eventually, Genevieve's break into Japanese diplomatic ciphers would lead to the deciphering of a message that would trigger the D-Day invasion machine. But first, let's talk about the silent machine behind the invasion, because of the approximately 20,000 American codebreakers during World War II, about 11,000 were women. This means that 11,000 other women worked secretly and brilliantly to accomplish the world-changing task of breaking what were once unbreakable codes. So, with all that said, it all begins when in the fall of 1941, letters began quietly arriving in the mailboxes of carefully selected female college students. The letters invited each of these college seniors to a private meeting with a math or science professor. They were students at one of the seven sister colleges in New England, like Smith or Wellesley or Radcliffe. These schools were commonly viewed as counterparts to the male Ivy League colleges that were nearby, and therefore considered the best liberal arts education that a woman in the United States could get. One after another, these students met with their professors, and they answered two questions. The first question was, do you like crossword puzzles? And the second was, are you engaged? If the student liked crossword puzzles, which meant that she had an affinity for identifying patterns and problem solving, and she wasn't engaged because heaven forbid, she pursue a professional opportunity if there was any possibility that she may have to follow her future husband, if he were stationed across the country before shipping out overseas, she was invited to take a secret course that would qualify her to be a top secret code breaker for the U.S. Navy. These months prior to the attack on Pearl Harbor, the U.S. government saw their entrance into the war as fairly inevitable. Young men would be enlisted to fight overseas, and the projected shortage of labor in the face of what would be a desperate need for workers in factories and with government agencies made the Navy, and later the Army, shift their gaze to the untapped potential of female workers. So they began secretly selecting women to help with the impending explosion in demand for codebreakers that would result from all-out war. So why codebreakers? As I'm sure you can imagine, communication, or the lack of it, can make or break a war. And knowing what the enemy is thinking can understandably make the difference between victory or defeat. So in the fall of 1941, the United States could see that war was coming, and after Pearl Harbor, they were suddenly on the defense. Encrypted enemy communications were flying over radio waves worldwide, and there was a panic need for skilled cryptanalysts who were capable of breaking enemy codes. The Army and Navy knew that educated young men simply wouldn't be available to look after the country's interests from home. So for the first time, they started looking to women. They needed women with math, language, and analytical skills. Essentially, women with a good liberal arts education. Luckily, a liberal arts education was one of the few kinds of education that was at least moderately encouraged for women. 
The reason for this was that it qualified women to be teachers, which was one of the very few professional opportunities open to women at that time. Now, it's not that every single woman in America spontaneously wanted to grow up to be a teacher, though of course some of them did. It was that teaching was one of the very few professional opportunities that women could really rely on actually getting, since so many other professions, again, were overtly close to them. Women who wanted to be engineers or doctors or architects would have a really hard time finding a college or university that would accept them. Both private and state colleges were often simply closed to women. And as another blow to professional opportunities for women, many positions were often only available until they got married. Something called the marriage bar essentially required women to quit their jobs once they got married. As a result of these restrictions and prevailing attitudes toward education and professional opportunities for women, only 4% of American women got a four-year degree at that time. Coming out of the Depression, families often had to consciously consider whether sending their daughter to college would have a long-term or even a short-term financial benefit because of the lack of opportunities for female college graduates. But on the other hand, Sometimes the biggest financial payoff a woman could get out of her college experience was to meet another college student and marry well. Women who attended the Seven Sister Colleges, for example, would be thrust into the orbit of Ivy League college men who were expected to do well in life. And to be fair, marriage itself may have been what many of these women and their parents ultimately wanted out of that four-year education. But regardless, these women tended to be intellectually astute and curious, and many of them who would eventually accept positions with the Army or Navy funneled this intelligence into being fantastic codebreakers. Starting with the students who passed that secret cryptanalysis course they took at their New England colleges, female codebreakers began to arrive on the scene in Washington, D.C. after graduating college. The Army began recruiting teachers and students at teaching colleges from the southern states as well. And in July of 1942, the U.S. Army and Navy both began the first major experiment with admitting women into the military. Because even the existence of code-breaking work was top secret, Army recruiters didn't actually tell these women what kind of work they would be doing. They just pitched some kind of nebulous work in Washington, D.C., but once the women took an aptitude test, many of them would be sent to a code-breaking unit and absolutely thrive doing work that challenged and rewarded them. And as these women came to Washington, D.C., in a trickle at first and then later in a flood, they entered a world of ordered chaos. The U.S. military was essentially building the plane as they flew it. So prior to America's entrance in World War II, the U.S. did have official code-breaking efforts headed up by our friends Elizabeth and William Friedman from part one of this code-breaking series. But the sheer volume of encrypted communications that would be monitored and broken during the war would require a staggering quantity of personnel. Because code-breaking was a mammoth operation, from receiving and distributing incoming coded messages that were intercepted in the field, to identifying and checking for duplicate messages, perhaps having to strip down a first layer of encryption so that a base code could be broken, to manning encryption machines, and beyond. In short, it required an extensive assembly line of workers. When the women arrived in Washington, D.C., they were told that their work was top secret and that sharing information about it with anyone was punishable by death. Talk about a stressful onboarding process. 
This meant that they couldn't talk about it with friends, family, roommates, or boyfriends. They couldn't even talk about their work with each other outside the confines of not just the building that they worked in, but in many cases outside the actual rooms that they worked in. If asked by friends, family, or acquaintances what they did for the government, they were instructed to say that they did things like empty trash cans, sharpen pencils, and fill inkwells. Of course, the depressing part of this is that people generally didn't second-guess this story. It was just assumed that whatever work women were going to be doing was going to be boring. But while depressing, the underestimation of these women was a total asset when it came to protecting the actual work they were doing. But despite the heavy responsibility, the women also experienced a sense of freedom they had never had before. For the first time in their lives, they were living unchaperoned. In fact, there was a lot of stigma against these women at first. They were considered to be, quote, bad women because it was assumed that they were being put into the military to sexually service the men. Some parents really didn't want their daughters to join up. Of course, this wasn't the case, and over time, there was less and less stigma associated with women joining the military or working for the government. But the women did have their fair share of fun. Neighbors did complain from time to time about women making a lot of noise late at night and fraternizing with men. Uh, There were also stories of some pretty legendary parties. But a high standard of performance at work was still and always maintained. The women enjoyed the professional opportunities that came with code breaking and the chance to apply their brilliant minds to a big and important challenge. And for the first time, many were seen as equal to men. So as the women settled in, they learned the fundamentals of code breaking, like the importance of repeated characters and how alphabets could be scrambled and put into tables. To give you a little bit of context, let's hop into our code breaking classroom for just a second. First, let me offer you a short disclaimer on codes and ciphers. As I established in the previous episode of this series, the terms code and cipher are often used interchangeably by us non-code-breaking folk. For better or for worse, I have a tendency to do this, but there is a difference between the two. So a quick explanation is that a code is when a word or phrase is replaced with a different word or phrase. You would probably take that message at face value if you didn't know that there was actually a coded message there. An example of a code is, the eagle has landed. This phrase could actually be referring to any number of things besides an actual bird landing on a tree. On the other hand, a cipher is when individual letters or groups of letters are changed through some process or algorithm into other letters, numbers, or symbols. These messages tend to be unreadable and can only be found out through specific methods of code breaking. So in order to begin identifying codes versus ciphers and then learn how to crack them, the women learned that letters of the alphabet have behavioral patterns. So as we discussed in the first episode of this series with Elizabeth Friedman, there are certain letters that appear most often in every language, like the letters E, S, T, and O in English, and also that certain combinations of letters frequently appear together, like S and T and T and H. So if a cryptanalyst or codebreaker was looking at an enciphered message and noticed that the letter X appeared frequently in that message, they could hypothesize that X might stand for one of these frequently occurring letters. From there, they could look for additional behavior patterns to decipher the message. And by this logic, you wouldn't have to actually speak the language that your enciphered message was written in, although of course it would help. You would just need to understand the behavioral patterns of that language it was written in to be able to break the code. 
To identify these types of patterns, codebreakers were encouraged to make charts, graphs, and tables to take frequency counts of letters within any given message. These fundamentals of codebreaking essentially boil down to identifying patterns. Good codebreakers are able to analyze a text both broadly and narrowly enough that they can catch small details while seeing how these details interact with the whole. This was why the New England college students were asked specifically if they liked doing crossword puzzles, because it also requires using certain clues and indicators to identify patterns across the whole. But of course, in real practice, code breaking was much more difficult and much more complex. And even though messages were coded throughout the war using coding machines, which created much more complex code systems, at the end of the day, breaking most of those codes would still boil down to identifying patterns within the messages, even if those patterns were much more obscure. And that's it for the code-breaking classroom. Now, back to these awesome women as they settled into their jobs in Washington, D.C. As the recruits were assigned to code-breaking teams, they generally ended up focusing on either commercial, German, Japanese, or even Russian communications. At this point, the U.S. government was like, we're at war, so I get to look at everything. But prior to this moment, the idea of such broad surveillance, especially on ordinary citizens, was rejected by both lawmakers and citizens. But as we've seen, war tends to be one of those circumstances where legal lines become blurred and never really become clear again. Commercial codes were monitored to make sure that American businesses and banks didn't have any dealings with Japanese or German entities. The Russian team was quite small and was actually even more top secret than the others because the U.S. was not exactly supposed to be intercepting the communications of their allies. Most people working in the same building had no idea that this unit even existed. However, this team would eventually grow as World War II came to an end and the Cold War began. But now that the women had been sorted into their code-breaking houses, the next breakthrough would bring them that much closer to the D-Day invasion. So yet another mountain that our female code-breakers had to climb was the Japanese Army Code. This was a completely different system than the code that the Japanese diplomats or Navy were using. Some of the Japanese military code systems were numerical, so math skills were required to break them. Others used letters. But a major challenge with Japanese military cryptograms was that when a message came through, there were a lot of potential code types to narrow down from. So code breakers had to understand which system the message was written in, how to break it, and then go ahead and actually break it in real time. And now, making a bit of a stealthy entrance onto the scene, we have Anne Cara Christie. Anne was in her senior year at Russell Sage College when the dean quietly nominated her for an open position with the Army. She had apparently performed very well academically and had strong leadership skills. Now, compared to Anne's unintentional landing as a codebreaker in Washington, D.C., Wilma Berryman had a unique trait. She became a codebreaker not through a nomination process or a recruitment program, but because she was genuinely interested in the field. Wilma had been trained to teach high school math, but was working at a payroll office when she found out about a codebreaking correspondence course that was offered by the government. Wilma spent several years on the course, and after completing it, she was ultimately hired as a codebreaker. Together, Anne and Wilma would do something the U.S. government had been trying to do for years. They broke into the Japanese Army's code. 
Codebreakers often start the codebreaking process with what's called a crib. A crib is a word or phrase that, given a bit of context, you could reasonably expect a message to contain. These words and phrases could vary depending on where exactly the message came from, the message length, time of day, etc. Also, protocol often dictated that members of the Japanese and German military use specific openings to their messages to convey logistical information like the intended recipient, the address, the location, and often also respectful greetings. These keywords and phrases could be used by codebreakers as a hypothesis to start testing against the code. Using these cribs, codebreakers were able to isolate a section, word, or group of words in a message to essentially reverse engineer the code the message was written in. Amazing, right? If the hypothesis proved correct, they had broken into that code, and thousands upon thousands of ciphers were cracked this way. At the suggestion of a counterpart at the British codebreaking headquarters, Anne and Wilma honed in on the beginning of the Japanese messages, knowing that after a Japanese army message was enciphered, an address was attached by a radio man to specify who the message was from, who it was to, and the location of the recipient's unit. Approaching the Japanese messages with the guess that the early text would reveal an address, along with the help of additional resources like partially broken messages for comparison or message templates left behind by retreating or defeated Japanese soldiers, allowed Anne and Wilma's unit to build enough context to open a door into the code. According to a memo from early 1942, it would take 12 months of training before a new codebreaker could perform elementary duties and two years or more before they would be able to do more advanced work. But in reality, most codebreakers didn't have the luxury of a lot of time to be effective in their work. But the more time they spent reviewing and cracking codes, the larger their frame of reference became for the massive library of messages coming through. Codebreakers kept extensive libraries of messages they worked on, so they could be referenced at any time. By the time she was working on cracking the address code in January of 1943, Wilma had dealt with so many messages that she remembered some earlier unbroken Japanese army ciphers that had been filed away. When she compared those early Japanese army ciphers to some of the cribs she was currently working on, she could see both the underlying code group and the likely meaning of the message. This was the first real break into any Japanese army code system. From there, Anne got to work sussing out the meaning of individual words from those code groups. The work that Anne, Wilma, and their entire unit subsequently did allowed the U.S. military to get a sense of the strength, equipment, type, location, and disposition of Japanese army troops. The U.S. could now predict Japanese naval and army movements, block troops and supplies from being dispersed, and perform preemptive attacks. This was a huge victory for codebreakers, and it was a big step toward the beginning of the end at Normandy. So, as we established in the previous episode of this series, German codes were often created using the Enigma machine, which was a complex system of typewriter, plugs, and rotors. Because of its complicated makeup, and also because the Germans changed the settings of the machine every 24 hours, this Enigma machine created so many potential code outcomes that it was once considered unbreakable. Until mathematician Alan Turing completely changed the game by developing a machine that could test enough potential code outcomes at a time, based on various hypotheses of the codebreakers, that they could identify each day's Enigma machine settings within a matter of hours. 
This blew the door wide open for British and American codebreakers to tackle all the Enigma-enciphered messages flying over the radio waves. These German messages provided intel about troop locations and movements, supplies, artillery, U-boat activity, and spies. By October of 1943, Elizabeth Friedman, superhuman codebreaker and leading lady of the previous two episodes of this series, had decrypted an Enigma message that would neutralize the Nazi spy ring that was threatening to destabilize South American governments. And so we arrive at a moment when preparation meets opportunity. Agnes's break into the Japanese Navy code, Genevieve's break into the Japanese diplomatic codes, the cracking of the Enigma cipher, Elizabeth Friedman's staving off of the Nazi threat in South America, and Anne and Wilma's breaking into the Japanese Army code set the chessboard. And now, U.S. codebreakers were about to move the pieces. That opportunity came when, in November of 1943, the women in Washington, D.C. got to work deciphering a series of messages coming through on the Japanese diplomatic purple machine. The intercepts were sent by Hiroshi Oshima, the Japanese ambassador to Nazi Germany. In his communications, he bragged to colleagues in Tokyo about a trip he had taken to see Nazi operations in France. He went into meticulous detail about German fortifications along the coast of France. Based on Oshima's description, the U.S. military could glean which areas of the coast were less protected. Together with broken Enigma messages and other intelligence, this purple machine intercept helped Allied commanders decide that they would make the D-Day landing at vulnerable Normandy. But it wasn't just as simple as that. The Allies now knew of a weak spot on the French coast, but what they really needed was to make it a blind spot. That the Allies would try to invade Nazi-occupied France was not a big surprise to anyone, but the question was where and when. The Allies would need to draw the Germans' attention elsewhere so that Normandy would remain an unexpected invasion site. So how else to do this than to create a fake army? That's right. The United States military created a non-existent army, in fact, two non-existent armies, using nothing else but fake communications created by our fabulous female codebreakers. Because American codebreakers didn't just break codes during the war, but they also created coded messages of their own and monitored radio traffic to make sure that U.S. communications were secure. So, leading up to the invasion, the U.S. and British military used their own coded messages that they assumed the Germans were intercepting to create a campaign of fake communications to trick the Germans into believing that the Allied forces were both bigger than they actually were and also more spread out. Of these two phantom armies, one was supposedly lying in wait in Scotland and would invade Norway, and the other waited in Kent and Sussex and would invade at a beach over 100 miles east of Normandy. For weeks, our codebreakers created and sent the exact kind of traffic that a real army would send. Except, of course, it was fake. And these fake coded messages flew across the airwaves as a special little gift for the German military. Japanese messages intercepted in June of 1944 confirmed that both the Japanese and German military believed the fake messages. And this brings us back to the moment at 1.30 a.m. when our female codebreaker named Anne White read the German intercept confirming that the invasion at Normandy had begun. 
And once the initial invasion message came in, others followed in quick succession as Enigma machines up and down the French coast began pumping out the same warning to their comrades. The Allies had invaded. The women began deciphering and reading the progression of the invasion almost in real time as German radio operators relayed updates across the radio waves. Thousands of Allied vessels filled the English Channel as 160,000 Allied soldiers landed on the shores of France. As they rushed up the beach, they faced heavy fire from long-range artillery, machine guns, mortars, and flamethrowers. At the same time, almost 25,000 airborne troops parachuted and glided down just above the beaches to bypass the fire aimed toward the English Channel. Our codebreakers had husbands and brothers at the invasion, and they worked all night deciphering the messages that described the horror their loved ones were experiencing from the vantage point of the Germans. They read that the French resistance had cut some German communications and that Allied soldiers were scaling the cliffs at the beach. Let's just take a second to imagine both the elation and horror of this moment. These women were basically following a massive battle in real time, knowing that the Germans had been taken completely by surprise and that this battle could turn the tide of the war. But at the same time, it had to have been clear that casualties would be absolutely devastating. And of course, especially for those women who had husbands, brothers, friends, and cousins wading through the surf onto those beaches. Codebreaking definitely took its toll on our codebreakers. It wasn't unheard of for codebreakers to suffer breakdowns as a result of the extreme pressure they were under, knowing that the codes they did or didn't crack would mean life or death. For example, after the purple cipher was broken, William Friedman, Elizabeth Friedman's husband, who worked on Japanese code machine ciphers throughout the war, had a nervous breakdown. He'd been under so much pressure to crack into Japanese communications, and he understood the high stakes. So once his team had broken into that system, he just collapsed emotionally. And many other codebreakers would share terrible anxiety. Some codebreakers watched as Japanese or German intercepts came through, confirming planned attacks on ships that their loved ones were on, with no way of preventing it. The stakes for their work were incredibly high, and they knew it. On the other hand, the women generally cheered when an enemy ship, submarine, or airplane was taken down. This was war, after all, and they truly felt that their home and freedom were at stake. But over the years, many of them would develop conflicted feelings about the work they had done. While they believed strongly in the impact of their work, they also understood that their efforts contributed to the death of someone's son, friend, or fiancé. So these women not only carried the sobering weight of secrecy, but also the complex feelings of both determination and guilt that come with war. But from a military standpoint, D-Day was a great strategic achievement. The Germans had believed the dummy traffic of our codebreakers, so the invasion at Normandy was a complete surprise. And that day signaled a total change in the tide of the war. And our codebreakers and codemakers played a central role in that victory. Germany surrendered on May 7, 1945, and on August 14, 1945, U.S. Army codebreakers watched as a Japanese message came over the airwaves and was decoded and translated. Japan had surrendered. The women were relieved and elated, but they couldn't tell anyone what they had just read. 
The next day, President Truman announced the Japanese surrender. Hordes of people, including our codebreakers, poured out into the streets. There was shouting, singing, and dancing. For most of the women, the stifling summer work days, all night shifts, separation from families, and complete independence were coming to an end. Shortly after the Japanese surrender, the flood of intercepts dwindled to a trickle. The women were thanked for their hard work and released from their positions. They were reminded that the work they did remained top secret and could not be discussed with anyone. Not friends, not family, not husbands. And just like that, the women who were so essential to the war effort were asked to go home and make room for the men returning from war. For many of these women, working in those cramped rooms surrounded by piles of paper was the best time of their lives. They'd proven to men and to themselves that they were capable of amazing things. But unfortunately, most of the women were never allowed to tell people what they had done during the war. And because they respected that secrecy so fiercely, until recently, their contributions had just faded into the past. Some women would watch quietly as the men in their lives bragged about their top secret clearances, hinting at the brave work they had done during the war. And the women didn't say a thing. They took their secrecy oaths so seriously that their families and spouses had no idea that they had done far more than empty trash cans, sharpen pencils, and fill inkwells during the war. Elizabeth Friedman's name was essentially erased from her work when the FBI acquired all 4,000 of her decoded messages that she had shared with them during the war, and they were labeled with FBI identification numbers. She honored her secrecy oath and wasn't able to set the record straight about the incredible work she had done, not even with her husband, William, who couldn't share his incredible code-breaking victories with her either. In the 1990s, the work of the codebreakers was declassified, but most of the women didn't know it, so they kept holding on to their secret. Many of them never knew that they were finally allowed to talk about their service. Elizabeth's work was finally declassified in 2008, and her astonishing contributions are just now being shared with the world. A small group of these codebreakers would stay on after the war, or leave initially, then come back. The U.S. government still needed skilled cryptanalysts to deal with ongoing intelligence gathering. Especially now that things were heating up with Russia, codebreakers like our Japanese codebook breaker, Anne Kara Christie, would continue breaking codes for what would later become the NSA, and she eventually became the first female deputy director. So let's recognize that from the beginning, it was women who were at the forefront of this field. From Elizabeth Friedman's time to World War II to the Cold War and to today, women have been innovating and creating new approaches to this work. They have crouched over desks for hours, days, years, unlocking secrets. They are present from the inception of American code breaking to today's cybersecurity efforts. The closest thing we have to code breakers today are those men and women working in cybersecurity. They protect both private and government systems from being hacked and, in theory, may hack into systems themselves, just like our World War II codebreakers hacked into the radio and cable communications of other governments many years ago. 
However, we see the same pattern playing itself out again when it comes to women in technical fields. When a, quote, man's world was opened up to women like Elizabeth Friedman, Agnes Meyer Driscoll, Genevieve Grochen, Anne Cara Christie, Wilma Berryman, and the thousands upon thousands of others who did incredible code-breaking work during World War II, the world changed. They were given the opportunity to see new possibilities for themselves and to show others what they were capable of. Some women did break codes immediately after World War II and throughout the Cold War, but when World War II ended, most women were essentially told to get back in the kitchen. I see this as a great tragedy of this situation. I'm certain that many of those codebreakers were happy to get back to their families and to start families of their own. But when a world had been opened up to them in which they thrived and then just as quickly closed again, I can only imagine how limiting and isolating that must have felt. Now, fast forward to the 1980s, when computers became more publicly accessible. By this time, governments across the world had transitioned to computer technology, and the same code-breaking game was played. Each group encrypted their information, while I imagine they at least tried hacking into each other's systems. Again, women were told that this work was not for them. Computers were marketed to boys and their fathers. They weren't for girls. And so we see a frankly devastating gender gap in the world of computer science in general, which extends to the cybersecurity field as well. But as more and more women move in this direction, these fields that are so influential and so important will only improve as more women make their mark on them. And just like our code breakers in World War II, that influence will reverberate for generations to come. And now it's time for a segment I call The Stacks. Doing research is one of my favorite things to do. The more you learn, the more the puzzle pieces of the world start to come together. So I want to take you into the stacks of the library with me to share favorites of the books, documentaries, movies, interviews that I think you would enjoy if you want to learn more about this topic. In this case, my favorite read about female codebreakers in World War II was Liza Mundy's Code Girls. Mundy's book is a sweeping depiction of the experiences of female codebreakers in both the U.S. Army and Navy during World War II. Though it's an incredibly big story to tell, she made it very personal. She reached out to and spoke to many surviving codebreakers and so beautifully integrated their stories into the overall history of the experience of the thousands of women who did this important work. By the end, I cared about these women, and I was left with such a deep appreciation for and fascination with their intelligence, persistence, and grit. So again, if you'd like to learn more about female codebreakers in World War II, I highly recommend Liza Mundy's Code Girls. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you next time on Broadly Underestimated.